0: You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health Systems Center for Healthy Aging. Welcome back everyone. Today we have a special two-part episode with the Health and Human Science Matters podcast hosted by the College of Health and Human Sciences Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies, Matt Hickey, and the college's digital media strategist, Avery Martin. Together, we teamed up to speak with Dean Lisa Youngblade and Dr. Nicole Earhart, the former interim and current directors of the Center for Healthy Aging, to have a conversation about women as leaders in science. If you haven't already, head over to the Health and Human Science Matters podcast linked in our episode notes to listen to part one of this conversation, where Earhart and Youngblade discuss their trajectories, hobbies, and roles as female leaders in STEM. Then come back here for part two to learn why CSU is uniquely positioned to study models of aging because of our land grant mission. In this episode, Dr. Earhart describes the center's longitudinal COVID-19 screening study in nursing facilities, And Dean Youngblade shares about CSU's role in responding to the mental health crisis in Colorado, both locally and in rural areas across the state. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Well, I just want to say, first off, that getting a director and a dean in the same room at the same time was quite the feat. So I'm yes. so glad that we're here today. kudos well, <laughs> to the, the yeah. production team here. Yes, I think we started having these conversations in June or May of this year, and here we are in November. We finally made it happen. So. Yes, <laughs> took some time. Yeah, i love to see that we're all able to be here today. So, yes. um, you know starting for our, you know, Living Healthy Longer podcast, we like to think about things from the research perspective. And so when I was prepping for this conversation, Lisa, I went back and listened to our podcast that we recorded with you last year. And um, something that was interesting that now that you're both sitting here in front of me, I want to ask you about is, Lisa, you talked about how, you know, Both of you come from two very different research backgrounds. Nicole with the veterinarian side of things, Lisa with human development, lifespan science. And Lisa, you discussed a little bit about how you know, we all, we need to see these different models of approaching aging studies, kind of going back to this interdisciplinary conversation that we've been having, um, because that's how we kind of make progress in understanding aging. Like we need to have these various different models. So I wonder if you two can talk just a little bit about the two very different models of aging and how you approach them, um, and maybe how you can debunk these myths about aging quicker by having different models involved.
1: Yeah, so I think the big, like, aha moment for me, actually, at CSU was thinking about animal models of development, aging, disease, any of that. was never exposed to it uh, in human development. I don't even know that I really read much about it, because I was so focused on, uh, you know, human uh, development. So, um, so I just see the power in the ability to look at something in a much shorter time frame um, in... Um, organisms that are, you know, kind of close to each other. You don't think about it, but I have learned uh, a lot from hearing talks about how similar they are, but age quicker, um, and in similar environments. I mean, I think there's like so so much you can learn by thinking about these um, uh, animal models of different um, you know, disease function, aging function. And I imagine even into social behavior and haven't, you know, haven't thought about that too much, but like, that would be fascinating mm-hmm. too.
2: Yeah. yeah. I, I agree. I, I think I see this as a, a continuum and not really two sides of a coin at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, people, the, the strangest question I face, and it's really common is people are like, they know I'm a veterinarian. They knew I was a veterinary surgeon. And then they'll say, so you're doing human stuff now. And I'm like, well <laughs> it's <laughs> never been just about one species or another species it's it's this continuum and whether you're talking about cancer or aging or you know environmental influences of health or social influences of health or developmental health there really isn't i mean yes there are different endpoints obviously with different models and different complexities with different models which are is an advantage to science because you can start in simple models like Single-cell animals, or you know, worms, or fruit flies, et cetera, but that this is not sort of either or. It's an and, and there's a continuum from the single-cell organism to global populations. That there really there really is not a dividing line, and so helping people understand that the that whatever they do, whether it's social sciences or single-cell organisms or molecular biology, is relevant to the entire mm-hmm. system. And when you see that, you're like, oh, I do have something to to contribute on a very broad scale. But unless you get people at the table that are from all those places, they don't always see that. Um, And and that's kind of why we're here, is to help people understand that this is part of a a bigger picture, that they weave prominently through a thread through that we need their perspective on. So maybe that doesn't answer your question directly, but kind of speaks to the idea of this bridge across such a great span of different organisms.
1: Yeah, and I think um, I think you know, CSU is so brilliantly poised in this way, um, you know, as a strength, um, just that commitment to translational health, mm-hmm. um, you know, from as you said, you know, molecular, cellular development to all the way to policies that Im- impact people and and just a comfort with having that conversation across that spectrum, I think is actually pretty unique here at CSU. Mm, I agree. and agree. Um, and quite a strength for us in really combating big, big, big questions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Nicole, you also mentioned earlier about how being in this director role has been a learning curve for you in these other areas of aging that you were not so well versed in. So how's that learning going?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's going well, but I have thankfully very forgiving people that, um, that I can, that come to me and tell me when I've misstepped in terms of my language or description about certain things, because I still don't always have the depth of language and and the depth of even descriptors or ex- of expertise to make people feel inclusive, inclusive, or you know included. And I thankfully, my associate directors Karen Hamilton and Deanna Davalos have been so pivotal in helping me see where my shortcomings are. Um, so yes, it's been a big learning curve, and I continue to have that learning curve. But again. Um, I hope that people are patient with me on that, but also for me, it's it's incredibly refreshing to get these different perspectives. And, you know, I lo- like the exponential rise in my understanding of other disciplines and, you know, how we can interact, and even just, you know, what is their grant processes like? What are their, you know, what does their research look like in, in terms of what does it encompass typically? Like, what tools do you use versus what people that are, I, you know, in disciplines I might be more familiar with might use? So. All of that is, has been fascinating, but uh, I have really relied on the mercy and grace of others to be patient with me as I as I learn other areas.
1: I, I love you talking about the um, learning curve. I mean, I think that's like, that's why we're all in this field. We, like, we're passionate about learning curves um, and always wanting to know more um, about, uh, you know, an area and, and an expansive view on that area. And, um, you know, one of the things I'm excited about that I think is also a strength is pulling these together to create really great learning opportunities for students. Mm -hmm. So look forward to conversations about training grants and and ways we can actually um, kind of more formalize what those pathways might look like for students. So really excited about the ideas you have there.
2: Yeah, and I think the centers, um, you know, This type of center is really the mechanism or the hub to create that, whereas in a department or a college, it's much more difficult. So, you know, both of those elements are necessary. And so it's really wonderful to be in partnership with supportive folks like you and helping me see, you know, how that might look. Um, But yeah, I think we share that passion for sure. Yeah. So you both mentioned a little bit about the
0: translational nature of CSU and how that's a strong suit that we have here. I wonder if we can dive a little bit deeper, deeper into that. And what do you think, you know, CSU is well positioned to pursue in areas of research, thinking about aging, thinking about human development, veterinary side of things, this translational component? Where, where are our strong suits as a university? Well
1: I don't know do you want to start? I, mean, <laughs> I, was I, I, I just feel like there's we, so much there is so much I mean I think obviously one of the things that's unique about CSU is kind of our focus on sustainability mm-hmm. um, and really thinking about that in the most broadest uh, ways all the way from how we conduct ourselves as a university to what our research is unleashing on the world and partnering with communities to solve all the way from building materials to actually things that I'm Pretty excited about social sustainability and and you know what kinds of things uh, might we think about there. So I you know sustainability is one um, big aspect, and I think you know related to aging. One of the the great ways I think CSU is poised to think about aging is is infrastructure and the built environment and how you know and and how those um, how that development impacts aging. Yeah. yeah. And that's unique here, like I, I've looked, and that is truly, truly unique here to pull those assets together.
2: Yeah, uh, I would take a even a more broad view and say something like, you know, we have a lot of expertise in, for example, climate science, aging, you know, veterinary medicine, developmental studies, et cetera, exercise science, so much um, depth. But what makes CSU really unique is its outward facing aspects. So, because we're a land grant mission, mm-hmm. it's one of our core values to engage the community. Mm-hmm. And that means our local community that is basically has given us the land that we now uh, sit on, but also our global community. And to, you know, that's that's unique of land grant uh, universities to, to in particular, but also of CSU as an R1 institution to have that outward facing focus. Um, so we're not, I would not describe us as an ivory tower in any way. We are out there, boots on the ground, interacting with um, the people that are experiencing whatever it is that we need to be solving. And then we bring those problems back to the lab, back to the mind bank of CSU, um, back to the policy influencers, back to all of it, and start mixing that up in a big bowl and start figuring out how are we going to put this together in a way that really makes a difference in the world. So that's what I think is unique about us.
1: Yeah, and I think, um, two kudos to CSU. Um, it's first university I've worked at that's been, and I, it's interesting because I hear people use the word silo all the time. We're so siloed, we're so siloed. And I think exactly the opposite. The walls here are so low um, to uh, facilitating interdisciplinary conversations. And this is valued. It's in our, you know, promotion documents as an expectation. Um, it's in our college codes. Um, it is part of the DNA we have here. And um, and I just I love
2: that environment. Mm-hmm. Collaboration. Yeah, collaboration is mm-hmm. also. You know the the. There are very few barriers to it. Where other universities I've been at where collaboration was mm-hmm. much more difficult just because people have more territorialism, and that doesn't exist yep. here. It yep. really doesn't.
0: I agree 100%. So, Matt, I want to give you a chance to hop in because it's not often that I get a research associate dean to be a co-host <laughs> for a conversation about research. So, So any questions on top of your mind?
3: Well, I just want to leverage this opportunity about – how unique CSU is to, to ask Nicole to unpack a little bit your experience with COVID and the skilled nursing facilities because again, th- you know, that wasn't obvious down the road in terms of, you. Here, you, you I see myself working in skilled nursing facilities or, you know, and of course you, you and Greg brought different skills to the table, right? So, but I think that's, that's really an exemplar of what CSU is all about. There was a need, an unprecedented need, and again, it wasn't or we we'll, you know we'll get back to you. it was what do you need right right so tell us more about that
2: yeah you know i can say that this that was literally one of the most rewarding experiences of my life is to work on that project together and to just frame it a little bit we you know as covid began to rear its head here in the us and was coming closer and closer to colorado we you know there were a number of us having sort of thoughts about how will we address this as a, as a society and you know, one of the things that was happening at the time is that we really didn't have testing available, right? That the testing was what tests were available initially were flawed, and then what was available was quite limited and only um, for those who were sick in the hospital. And one of the tenets of medicine is that if, if a test is not going to change what you do, then you have to think twice about doing a test. And at that time, it was, yes, we needed to know from a public health reason whether this person had SARS-2 or COVID. Um, but in terms of, did it influence what was happening in terms of that person's treatment early? No, it did not. So this is where my sort of training as a veterinarian came in to the thinking about the idea that if this were sort of a foreign animal disease outbreak, we would not use our very limited resources testing the sick. We would instead test the well because we'd want to know who in the quote, "herd were carriers. And how do we get them and prevent them from infecting the rest of the healthy animals? Again, I'm not a herd medicine person, <laughs> but, you know, this is kind of pretty central to whole, a veterinary perspective. Um, at the same time, I had a discussion with Greg Ebel, my colleague, in, who's a virologist, brilliant virologist. And he said, you know, this is PCR. It seems to me that we could make our own primers and we could certainly start doing some testing. But if we were to do that, where would we start? And I said, I know exactly where we would start. We need to start with the most vulnerable, and the most vulnerable people are people that are living in nursing homes because you understand that they're very immunosuppressed and ill and have other comorbidities, and likely if they get this disease, it's going to be disastrous. And right about that time is when Kent, Washington happened where it was about a 50% mortality rate in that one nursing home. So that was all very near and dear. And so... You know, we sort of recognized very early on that academic institutions represented an untapped resource in a time of public crisis that we could deploy very quickly a high high level of science and, you know, high level of integrity of testing that might be a benefit to public health. We did have a bunch of barriers, which is that you can't just go do that. You know, you need to, there's a regulatory process that you need to go through in order to actually perform human diagnostic testing, which we knew. But we thought, well if we could do this under a research umbrella, perhaps we can gather enough preliminary information that would then allow us to find the people that are coming to work in these nursing homes that might actually be infected but are still asymptomatic and prevent them from actually coming to work and actually infecting the most vulnerable populations. And fortuitously, because I had been creating relationships with nursing homes and um, assisted living facilities in the northern Colorado area, I was, and because of my role as the director, was invited to participate in a call with the governor's office, um, and Governor Paulus himself was on the phone, and he was sort of doing a crisis management, like what are the ideas, what do people have? And it was one of these things where you had like 59 people on the call. It was literally a phone call. And if you, di- like you, you the guy, you know, Paulus was on there for 10 minutes and then you had like 10 minutes where you could ask questions. And you had to dial a number really quick to get your num- like you, you on the <laughs> waiting list. And somehow I got in there and I just said, um, hey, you know, here's what we're thinking like we could help with this can we do this under a research umbrella but if we do we need an assurance um, from you a written assurance that we won't run afoul of regulatory processes in order to do this um and so he actually signed a letter i still have it um saying, you know we, I'm giving you permission, broad I have broad authority to give you permission to do this um, outside of a uh, CLIA-approved regulatory process. So that's what we did, um, is we developed the primers. And then it was sort of like most of the research um, enterprise at CSU had been shut down as a result of the fact that we had only essential services running at CSU to protect everybody at the stay-at-home order. And so we had graduate students and we had PCR machines that were sort of not working right then. And so everybody was like, what can we do to help? And this was where it got, um, this was where a lot of miracles happened really, is that people just volunteered. We had graduate students that were, you know, BSL level three safety trained, agreed to be transporting, um, you know, specimens back and forth across the state. We had lab uh, members that were just volunteering their time. We had faculty members that volunteered, um, you know, Disposable resources, money, lab space, whatever we needed, and people just rallied, and we were able to start this pilot project where we were testing about 400 um, asymptomatic workers in skilled nursing homes and assisted living as they came to work once a week, and we were able to show that we had about 16% of them were positive without ever having symptoms. And at the time, there was no screening available. So basically made the case that screening is something that we really need to be doing because there's a lot of these people that have the disease and are coming to work with the best of intentions to care for these people who really need them, and yet they're liable to infect them. Then there was pushback about, well, if you're asymptomatic, you're know, you probably not going to be infectious. Well, we were able to then perform a bunch of experiments that show, yes, indeed, these people were highly infectious. And so that work, and again, it was the, the work of many people, and the support of many people, um, colleges, the Office for Vice President for Research, that helped us and gave us the permission to do this, um, and helped us fund it, and, and including you know, Greg's work, some of my startup money, um, money from the different colleges, including CHHS. Um, allowed us to be able to kind of move forward with this. And then we presented those research results to Governor Polis, and that really launched the statewide surveillance program in nursing homes and assisted living, which later caught the attention of CDD, CDC and then became a CMS mandated, all based on the schedule that we were performing, um, you know, and it was scrutinized and of. Sc- course looked at by a lot of different experts and everybody said yeah this this is working let's do it and so it was just the most odd um, circumstance but it it was one of those experiences where it took people um, that were really willing to help that had skills that weren't doing what they would normally be doing and they just said all right here's a problem we want to help let's get together how are we going to do it and we just deployed and got started
1: and I think in an environment where um that was truly siloed where people worked only in their individual labs and did not have that collaborative spirit that we see here, this would never have happened. And um, it's such a great story.
2: Yeah, and as I said, it was one of the most heartwarming things that's ever happened in my career to watch that community come together and to know that we saved lives. And we could say that with great confidence that there were a lot of lives saved as a result of this team that was willing to You know, do whatever it took. And the people that believed in us, the higher administration that supported us, the governor who wrote us that letter. I mean, there's so many things that happened, had to happen.
1: And the leader who sat and punched numbers into the phone so she could get (laughs) her questions. Right? That initiative, too. Yeah. You know, like so many different wonderful parts. And
3: and Hannah, if I may, I want to ask the same question to Lisa. We're going to change the the time scale here because the dynamics were quite unusual for COVID. But you, you're at work right now visioning for the future on mental and behavioral health issues, particularly in rural settings, where the impact again is every bit as significant. We're talking about lives at risk here, right? It's The time scale is a bit different, but the import is, is very much the same. So talk to us about the, a different time scale of, of outward facing opportunities you, for CSU.
1: Yeah, and you know, the common denominator here is probably COVID. <clears throat> so if you look at, you know, statistics from Colorado, um, and Colorado is not so different from every other state in the nation. Um, the rates of suicide, of addictions, of depression have continually been rising. And you know, in the 30 years in my career, we've tried a lot of different interventions and uh, they still continue to rise. So we haven't quite solved the problem yet. Um, and um, at the same time we've been seeing rates rise. We've been seeing, workforce decline so fewer people are going into these fields because they're not well paying and they're incredibly difficult uh, you know taxing and take a lot of um, heart blood sweat and tears to be to be in these positions and then along comes COVID and just accelerates um, accelerates what we were seeing so I think this you know gives us an opportunity and uh, again much like Nicole uh, described um, you know, a t- uh, an opportunity for a team to come together. And so the vision for this team is um, could we take what, and this is actually, I think, a strategy that led to the Center for Healthy Aging is could we look and do an inventory of what our assets are at CSU and combine that with our mission as a land grant and our collaboration with communities to really think of a model that is unique. Um, and um, you know, uh, helpful um, to a situation. So what we are trying to envision now is what would an institute um, or some organizing body, an institute for mental and behavioral health look like at CSU that organized all of our training programs under a unifying umbrella that trains students, not in silos uh, in their you know, accredited programs, but really from the perspective of um, interprofessional education and what if in this model it's not just behavioral and mental health, but we also think about people like primary care physicians, um, veterinarians, um, other frontline workers who, teachers maybe, um, who you know are exposed to mental and behavioral health problems um, but train them from the perspective of an inter- interdisciplinary team that's gonna think a little bit more creatively about solutions and the interesting part about this is that's how people go to work they go to work in teams they don't go to work in a silo Um, and so we're doing a disservice i think um, by not really informing our training a little bit uh, our training programs from that perspective a little more deeply and then what if we took our you know world-class researchers who are doing incredible work about um, understanding whether different therapies or modalities work. Um, what if we thought about prevention um, and, uh, you know, programs that instill resilience well before a problem mm-hmm. starts? What if we wrapped that around our clinical training progra- programs? And then what if we partnered with our rural um, collaborators um, as a statewide institution using our extension workforce and extension connections, our connections to the two-year um, programs and think about alternative workforce development. So we train in behavioral and mental health at the top of the pyramid. You need a residency and a you know, clinical training and a PhD and it takes years and years and years to do this. Does everybody need to have that training? Certainly some people do. But are there other ways to envision the workforce? So what if we partnered and looked at different things you could do with a high school education? With a two-year degree, with a four-year degree, with a master's, with a Ph.D. Um, from uh, you know different disciplines, and um, so anyway, it's a it's a very very big uh, um, idea, but you know that workforce um, issue is huge. However, bad access is to mental health services on the front range, or at CSU, or any place. It's incredibly worse out in the yeah. rural areas. Uh, there's hundreds of miles between providers. Um, on a good day and sometimes more than that so again how do we use technology how do we leverage telemedicine Um, how do we think about systems um, in the communities themselves and and um, you know train around what does it mean to recognize mental and behavioral health um, issues early and last thing and I you know obviously very passionate about this in doing so how do we normalize it we talk about diabetes, we talk about health, um, you know, heart disease, and then we get to depression, suicide, and addictions, and all of a sudden we don't know how to talk about it. Yeah. We should talk about it in exactly the
3: same way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a health issue. It is not a disease. It is not something to be ashamed of. Right. Mm-hmm. Th-
3: th- this is life at a Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah. yeah. I love the what if. Mm-hmm. What if. Yeah. yeah,
1: so right now, very excited about it. And any listeners out there that have a checkbook that has fifty million dollars,
2: they are looking to unload. We know how to spend it. That yes. it be to Dean Lisa Youngblade. <laughs> no, CSU CSU, CSU, CSU. not me personally. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, that takes me back to last
0: year when we were having all of those extension conversations about. Who are we going to hire to be our extension specialists that go out into these rural areas and really address these issues that you're talking about? And yeah, when I going back when I think about extension at CSU, it's it's so different than other places I've experienced. Like you said, the land grant mission that we have here, it's we're not keeping the research in our own doors here at this main campus. We're trying to get it into the into the other places of Colorado too.
1: Yep, and what I think, again, like, Center for Healthy Aging is, like, multiple people coming from multiple perspectives, so it's not just me working on this. Right. In fact, the closest, you know, like, partner in this is uh, um, our now interim provost, Jan Nerger, but, um, you know, as colleague deans, like, we have been at the hip on trying to formulate this vision and appreciate that, um, that connection because that was part of the, you know, one of the amazing collaborations between these two colleges that the very early days uh, started to envision what Center for Healthy Aging yeah. could look like. Right. Um, and so it, I think that's where the magic is. And I've not been at an institution where deans are so willing to just work across college um, boundaries towards a great idea. Understanding that that great idea is gonna make all of our colleges that much more successful, and our students more successful, and our research more successful. Yeah. So that's well pretty special. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, and everything that you just said, you know, really describing what the problem is and how we're trying to develop solutions is a very similar conversation with what we have when it comes to older adults mm-hmm. and how to approach healthcare for older adults in the future, talking about there's not the workforce there currently, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, 20, 30 years from now, older adults are going to outnumber us by how many, you know? and how we need to have that workforce in place and we need to develop these resources and mental health in older adults is just as dire in other populations, if not more so. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's across the board right now in all sorts of vulnerable populations that that conversation needs to be happening.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually kind of an interesting day to be having this conversation because we heard in an earlier meeting today, uh, somebody was on like watching this on the news and it's the day where our world population hits 8 billion. Mm.
0: Yeah. yeah. Great. Wait, like today? Yes, today <laughs> is the day it's <laughs> 8 billion
1: it's whatever the day, you know, happy 8 billion oh person day. But yes, our population just made a, a a leap into a new set of billions and
0: um gracious. Yeah. Hmm. We're all, like, churning our minds yeah. right now. Yeah. Wait, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? these <laughs> challenges, <laughs> and they're just exponentially growing. Yeah. Yes. yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the urgency is always going to be there to yeah. develop these solutions yeah. that we're talking about.
2: Yeah, and I think we've traditionally been reactive, and we need to be proactive. And so that's why I really appreciate the vision that Lisa has in terms of, you know, how, how do we wrap this in a different way so that we can be proactive for the future? Because it's not going to come from you know, graduating that many more PhDs, that's part of the story, but there's a bigger need and it can't be filled by just that.
0: So taking a, taking a step back, this was a very like zoned in conversation that we just had, but taking a step back, going back to the topic of women as leaders in science, what advice do you have for women who are in research these days and approaching these big problems that, that we're talking about Um, how might that advice be, you know, influenced by your trajectories that you've talked about today?
2: Hmm. I love this question. And I think of it like this, you know, if we, if you draw sort of this big circle and inside the circle, so the big circle is your life, right? And maybe like at the top of the circle is your life and the bottom of the circle is your impact. And inside this big circle is like your family life your community life, your faith community, your work life, your work community, like all your play time, all of that. And you're trying to integrate all of that in this big circle. Um, I, I think the advice I would have is, for one, I think there's been so much focus on this whole work-life balance. And I, I, you might disagree, I don't know, but I, I think that's a bit of a myth, because it's really about an integrated life. There really is no like one side of the seesaw is work and the other side of the seesaw is life and we're just trying to balance between the two so developing sort of an integrated approach to all those things with the knowledge that you have to be gentle on yourself right because when you're a mom with two infants or two kids under the age of three that's a different phase of life and a different phase of bandwidth of emotional you know You know need an emotional like ability to pay attention to various different aspects of that integrated life versus when your kids are grown in their way in college but that's all part of the life and that doesn't mean that your contributions are less somehow at one phase than they are at another phase and so my advice i know i'm getting a little esoteric here but i guess my advice to the younger group is to just remember that it's all part of the same life It's all part of the same impact. And to try to be gentle on yourselves when you feel like you're not firing on every single cylinder because nobody does. Um, I can't play as hard as I work when I'm working. I can't work as hard as I play when I'm playing. And that's natural and it's fine. And you still are not, you know, diminishing your impact. So maybe that's esoteric, but that's sort of my thought when you ask the question. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's a great thought. And then I, so I guess I'll go to the other end of the lifespan and think about, um, you know, in or maybe not lifespan, but um, career span, and think about, you know, women that are in leadership Mm -hmm. positions and really, um, I think, have a kind of a a unique um, role maybe in helping to support that integration, and I actually really love that, I don't disagree, I do agree. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> um, I I do think we use work-life balance and have curiously wondered what does exactly that mean? Should it be 50-50 or right. if it's 45-65, is it like off? Or 45-55, <laughs> How, can, I, can I do math? <laughs> um, and um, so I think though a responsibility to think about that from a, a, a career span perspective and expectations, and. Um, you know, f- flexibility and not just in how you approach but the culture that you set that mm-hmm. this is allowable and doable and we don't expect the same, uh, you know, um, the cadence to work right. maybe, um, you know, with, young children and I think the same's true for dads right you know little children change your life it's different when you're single it's different when you you know you're maybe also balancing small children and an aging parent Mm -hmm. like how how do you how do you do that and um so kindness and compassion it's never a bad place
2: for that toward self and toward others yes exactly Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. so taking a step back going back to the topic of aging um we have a former interim director of the Center for Healthy Aging, now the new director of the Center for Healthy Aging. So I just wonder if you, you two can talk a little bit about aging research, where it is today, and what makes you excited for the future, since you both, again, come from these two different disciplines that are working hand in hand on this topic.
1: I'm going to start and say what I'm most excited about is, is the leadership of our Center for Healthy mm. Aging. Um, I, I am, I, uh, you know, I had the privilege, reluctantly, of serving as interim director because we could not find the right director and I actually remember the moment in which we found it. Um, Barry Braun, who's our department head from Health and Exercise Science, and I were at a seminar, we had a seminar series and I, can't, I don't even remember who the, the person was that was speaking, but uh, this person showed up that we hadn't seen before one Nicole Earhart <laughs> and um, we didn't know who she was but she was sitting there and then she asked a question and I remember looking at Barry at the same time like with this like do you know who that is? No, do you? Like that kind of communication and um, and she continued to ask some really good questions and then we said hello and she left and we were like we gotta get her for the director and we were just getting ready to launch the search again so I, I remember that just being so impressed uh-huh. by your uh, And I I, I wish I remembered who the speaker was, but I can't. Mm. I I remember that, like, glance. I remember that uh, look. And now I can't remember what your question was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Where Um, aging research. So, yes, so really excited about where it's going. And, you know, to harken back to our earlier conversation about that translational, um, Mm. that is so unique to this Center for Healthy Aging. I think if you look, and I haven't looked for a while, but I I know when we were building the center, it took a – a deep look across um, the country, there isn't a center that is um, centered in that intersection like this one is. And I think that's the incredible strength going forward. Yeah,
2: yeah, Yeah, that's a really good point Um, because I think if there is one place where there used to be a gap in the aging research field, it was this kind of bridge between um, how do you move between, uh, you know, what we we're learning about, and basic biology of aging, and um, and making that a reality for human populations in terms of how do we create interventions um, that might actually improve the process uh, of and just help us all age in a more healthy man- manner? Um, and CSU has this world-class veterinary college. And we're a relatively new aging center as compared to those that have been in existence for 30-plus years, like the Buck and MIT has one, et cetera. But the fact that we have this world-class veterinary college and um, this concept of um, this very powerful model of these companion animals that live in our environments and age just as we do, and yet they have shorter lifespans and a more... um, you know, a, a quicker progression of disease, et cetera, that allow us to study that in, an, in a setting that is so much more mimicking the process of human aging is a real advantage. And it's a distinguisher among our, our other aging center um, colleagues um, that we have something that w- we can really bring to the table that other places don't have. So that's certainly exciting. On a broader scale, though, I think I can very honestly say that the concept of, that we pull together from every college in every, pretty much every department, um, faculty that have a passion about this, and are willing to be um, part of our center <laughs> is something that's really exciting for me. So I just look forward to these fresh perspectives that people are going to bring. And, um, and really starting to look at different interdisciplinary teams that I think are gonna be very high impact.
0: That's about the end of our conversation. Matt, do you have anything, Avery, you want to add to this conversation before we close? The,
3: yeah, thank you, Hannah, for allowing us to, to team up with you. You know, this, this has been so much fun, and I can't wait to listen to it, right, because there, there have been consistent pearls of wisdom. You know, so I love the what if. What, what if we, we live integrated lives mm-hmm. where we don't pretend that the, the Matt or the Nicole or Lisa or anybody else at work is a different person from the one that is at home? That we can, what if we spend the same passion, whether we have to be here at 615 or, or 615 at night, or we don't, right? We can, we can invest that same energy at home and at play doing the kind of things that we love so that we live these well-rounded lives, right? What if we're willing to ask questions at certain stages of life? What if we look at life as something other than a coin that has two sides but a continuum to riff on your idea? right and what if we constantly remind ourselves that at at points along that continuum time is going to seem to move slower or faster and circumstances are going to put us in different positions than than they were 10 years ago or they will be 10 years or 10 days or sometimes 10 hours from now right so that permission to to give yourself a little bit of grace exercise a little patience I love the what-ifs and I love the continuum because I think they really paint the picture for us about possibilities.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. This Thank was you delightful. Was <laughs> I just appreciate, again, like Avery was saying, just getting to listen and to be in the same room <laughs> yes. as this conversation today.
3: Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you all.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.